Um, Judah and Tamar is another one of those stories in Genesis that you're wondering about, where in the world did this come from? It's kind of interesting. Uh, I think that it, in the end, we'll hopefully see how it fits into our grand narrative. Uh, maybe through this time, some of y'all have been with me uh, from the beginning of Genesis. Uh, it, it's interesting when you go through it like this, how quickly you realize that some of these stories are interesting, aren't they? You know, you kind of forget it. Um, like I said, you don't do, you, you know, you do, you do Noah's Ark when you're a little kid, but then you forget that everybody else dies. That's not the greatest story in the world. And then, and then you, you know, you, you don't do some, of uh, Abraham's difficulty. You got some of that. Those stories don't really come up. You really don't think about Simeon and Levi killing a bunch of people in town whenever, whenever their sisters messed with, you know what I'm saying? Those are not the stories, as I said before, that come in the kids' Bibles. Um, they're kind of skipped over and Judah and Tamar is the same but man I think Judah and Tamar is one of those stories hopefully we'll see tonight that uh, really tie things together in some ways scripturally so uh, looking at this passage in Genesis 38 let me remind you that back in chapter 37 verse 2 it says these are the generations of Jacob this is the last section in Genesis, remember those 10 sections, these are the generations of, separate all those sections out. This is the last one. These are the generations of Jacob. Through this time, what you'll see happening is now he's going to talk about the sons of Jacob. So the first thing they begin to talk about, of course, is Joseph. He's the one that comes up first. And as we saw last time, by the way, so thankful for Dr. Walter Johnson um, I've said this to you guys before. He is uh, someone very special to both Allison and I. We, our professor in college, love him dearly. I called him at 4 p.m. last week and said, um, there's people waiting on me to teach tonight, and uh, I need you to go do that. You know that kind of deal? And he jumped right in, so thankful for him. But two weeks ago, we looked at this passage in Genesis 37 where Joseph father's favorite, got the nice coat, uh, had some dreams about how he was going to rule over his brothers. They were going to bow down to him. His brothers didn't like the coat or his dreams. They got mad. They decided to kill him, talk themselves out of killing him. Then they worked this deal of how they were going to get rid of him, come up with a plan for his dad to let the dad know that a wild animal got him or something crazy. And so that was the story in Genesis 37. We had already kind of seen that the sons of Jacob have some tendencies, as I said back in chapter 34, that, that they could be a little bit wicked or mean. And so now you get to 37 and you see the same thing. Joseph's finally alone with them in the field and they want to do away with him, so they do. And, and what you see is it's Joseph who at the end is going to be sold uh, into, as it says at the end of chapter 37, the office uh, to, into the house of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so Joseph's sold there. Now, it's like we kicked off the Joseph kind of narrative, right? And, and we know what's going to happen. Joseph and Potiphar, we know what's going to happen with Joseph and the dreams. We know he's going to get thrown in prison. Y'all know those stories from the flannel graph days. And so you have that down pat. But 
all of a sudden it flips here and it goes into this chapter 38. So he gets sold into Potiphar's house and now he's going to come back and talk about Judah. And so in some ways it's almost like chapter 38's a, a parenthetical kind of chapter because in chapter 39 he goes right back to Joseph, right? So it, in some ways it seems like this is a, a parenthetical kind of note here for Moses as he's writing this passage. And so I want to kind of give what I think are some of the reasons why this is placed here. It's not parenthetical in the sense that it's just kind of here's some knowledge for you. I think it has some uses for us. So some of the reasons why I believe this passage is here is that we are going to see uh, that it's a part of Jacob's story. Just because Joseph dominates this, this section here of Genesis, it doesn't mean that he doesn't talk about his other kids, right? And so, so the, this kid, Joseph and Judah, are both children of Jacob. So when it says these are the generations of Jacob, he's going to be referring to those kids. So it fits here in this section. We're going to see what happens with uh, Judah as well as Joseph. Not only that... We understand why I believe Judah becomes a picture on why I believe even the Egyptian bondage or captivity is going to be necessary. Whenever Jacob's kids are born, what do we see start happening? You see they start mixing with the Canaanites, right? And that's exactly what happens back in 34. They mix with the Canaanites. God told them not to do that. They mix with the Canaanites. And, and the, the um, daughter of Jacob, Dinah, is defiled. And the sons now have to go out and, and in their mind uh, win back her honor in some ways. And it just becomes a nasty scene. And then you see what happens it even at the end of that with Esau, giving the tip toward Esau. Uh, and talking about his generations in chapter 36, how they go off and they're not apart anymore. And now you get to 37 and you got Jacob. He's in the land of promise. He's where he's supposed to be finally. He finally got to Bethel, right? He's in the land of promise. But his sons are already starting to battle against each other. And when you look at it, what happens to Judah? Judah is going to marry a Canaanite. He's going to marry into the Canaanites, and that's always going to be trouble for them. And what, what you see here is we don't know why Judah did this, but obviously Judah takes off from his brothers. It tells us this. After Judah, and really why I believe this is also in this passage, is it's Judah who talks the brothers into selling Joseph into slavery, right? It's Judah who, who steps up, and it's, as it says, chapter 37, verse 26, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let our, hand, let our hand be upon him. Let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. Judah, in some way, is acting like, let's be righteous in this situation, okay? Let's don't kill him. That would be bad. Let's just sell him into slavery until our daddy's dead. You know, so Judah becomes the, the, the leader of the brothers. Already we've seen Simeon and Levi, older than Judah, kind of disqualified for their actions. Judah steps up as the fourth and he becomes the leader, if you will, for the brothers. And he's the 
He is the one that's the catalyst for getting rid of Joseph in the way that they did. And so now you've got these two, Joseph and Judah, as two kind of juxtaposed against themselves. And what you read about is whenever they go back and they tell uh, Jacob, there's a lot of J's in this passage, okay? So if I mess up and call somebody the wrong name, if it starts with a J, y'all just overlook it. It's, that's grace. And so Jacob, they go back and they tell Jacob what happens, but what happened to Jacob? All his sons and all his daughters rode up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, right? So Jacob can't deal with the loss of Joseph. He refuses to be comforted. And it's almost as if Judah's like, oh, man, I can't listen to dad cry all this time. Maybe conscience is getting to him. Maybe this is too difficult to deal with. So Judah takes off away from his brothers and away from the family. What I mean by this is this intermarrying almost is going is going to destroy uh, this these people they're going to destroy the children of Jacob and you see the necessity even in order for the people to become a great nation for God to even remove them from the Canaanites and put them with the Egyptians in fact it tells us in uh, Genesis chapter 46, that the Egyptians were more serious about keeping separate than any others. The Egyptians believed that they were better than everybody else. So in chapter 46, verse 34, he says, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now. Now we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, which is Egypt, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. In other words, let's go to Goshen. That way we won't be corrupted anymore. When they're trying to find ways to find some food, we won't be corrupted anymore. Judah becomes another case in point that when they live and dwell amongst the Canaanites, they mix with them and it's for their disaster. God sometimes preserves us by removing even some, some removing us from temptations and from these places and in some way, it may look as if sometimes that's even difficult things like going into Egypt. That's not your land, right? But God still removes them so he can purify them. Judah becomes that. Also, I think chapter 38 is a, a, a contrast then between Judah and Joseph. Judah, you're going to see, is going to act unrighteously. Judah, in fact, has got... Nothing, uh, you know, he, he, he's walking along. He just looks for some fleeting moment of pleasure with a prostitute. And he just goes after that. And, and, and he had no reason to do it. It was superfluous. There was no protection to be made. There was nobody harming his life. There was nobody threatening him. There was nothing, there was nothing outside of himself that was giving him any compulsion ultimately to sin. It was just his own desire, right? He sees a prostitute. He says, hey, come with me. Come with me. Will you be with me? And then you juxtapose that up to chapter 39 with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And in that same moment, Joseph had every reason to, to fall into sin, right? Because she's going to kill him and looks to kill him if he denies her. He has every reason just for that fleeting moment to sleep with Potiphar's wife because if he doesn't, what happens? And that's what happens. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife lies on him and they're looking to kill him. 
and they throw him in prison. But instead of falling into sin, Joseph runs and flees from it. So Judah had no reason really to do it other than his own compulsion. Joseph had every reason to do it in some ways world-wise. He does what is righteous. Judah does not. You're seeing the difference between these two in chapter 38 and 39. Those two chapters really go together to show those difference and contrast that. And ultimately also when it says in chapter 38 verse 1, it happened at that time. It's referring to that time while all of this was going on with Joseph and he was rising to power in, in Egypt. This is what's happening over on the other side. So the Moses is saying, oh, it's kind of filling up the chronology if you will. It's going to be about 22 years from the time they sold Joseph into slavery to the time they confront him and he uh, lets them know that he is alive in Egypt. And so filling up that time. So it's not just a parent, uh, parenthetical kind of chapter in here. It kind of fits into this to teach us some things about what's going on ultimately. And we see what happens. Judah he goes down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hara. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again... She bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Now, all of these is interesting. She goes in. Uh, by the way, uh, they don't name the Canaanite woman here because the, the emphasis is this is a Canaanite, right? And so he goes in with this Canaanite woman. He, he finds her. He's not in the land where he should be. He's left and gone away because he can't deal with this anymore. Goes in. He names these children, his three sons, after Canaanite names, not after the names of Abraham and his fathers. He, he's invested in that. And then he's in Chezeb where she born. So he's outside of the land. He is in Canaan. Judah has immersed himself in that land and in that place. That in scripture is never good. Now understand, nowadays through Jesus Christ, as scripture has been unfolded, right? We don't have, our blessing is not tied to a piece of property. I want y'all to understand that. Our blessing is tied to a person and that's Jesus Christ. And it's the same lesson for us to be outside of Christ is never good. You see what I'm saying? To not be doing what he's called us to do is never good. That's the image that you see here outside of the promises of God, outside of God's blessing is never where you want to be. And Judah is there. Judah is there. So what happens? He's had a couple youngins and Judah takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, a Canaanite. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Y'all heard that? Uh-huh. Y'all remind your kids of that sometimes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, just they were wicked. Just, it doesn't even say what he did. Just let you know this guy was rough. And the Lord said, that's enough. You know what I mean? And so, again, scriptures teach us that our days are numbered by who? The Lord himself, right? And who is sovereign over all of the, over life. 
Every breath you breathe is a gift from who? God himself. Can you, and let me just ask you this question real quick as I remind you, can you cause your heart to beat? No, it's not something you can do. That's the Lord doing that. And so here he says, this one has become so wicked, the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give the offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, let's talk about what's going on here, because Judah has a couple problems that's happening. A couple uh, decisions he's making. Now, already the first decision that Judah makes is he is married to an unbeliever. He's married to someone who's not within the promises of God. And because of that, the effects happen on to his kids, right? The effects happen to his children. He's married to an unbeliever, and he's got his firstborn, and he's just so daggum wicked, the Lord takes him. And so he's done. And so you start to see the consequences of this marriage that happens off the bat. And that's why that whole first part, when Moses is writing this, he's making that emphasis. This is a Canaanite, having Canaanite kids, marrying a Canaanite woman, picking a Canaanite wife for his children. These are all of this. And you see that becomes the repercussions of what is it. But it's not just it's not just Ur that's wicked. Onan is just as bad. It's not like his first one was just a bad apple. You know what I'm saying? The second one is wicked in the sight of God, and he's taken as well. So the effects are coming down all the way to the children. The scriptures teach us. The scriptures teach us, and it taught them here. You remember how, how, uh, you remember how Abraham was looking for a son for Isaac, and he sent his his partner back, his most trusted, loyal one, all the way back to his land to find one amongst his people to marry her, and that was Rebecca. You remember how protective they were, same way with, with uh, Jacob as he goes back, even though he has to run and flee, he heads back to his uncle's house, Laban, where he can find one from the family, not a Canaanite, where he could find one there, and he goes and he finds uh, Leah ultimately and then Rachel finally and so he sees he's finding them amongst his people and this are, these are the marriages God blesses when you marry in accordance with his command and his command has everything to do with those who believe and those who do not believe the idea of being unequally yoked is not just an Old Testament idea by the way this comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 Whenever Paul is dealing with the Corinthians who were living in a, a city that was by all means secular and carnal in Corinth, Paul is dealing with them and saying, look, some of your problem, y'all remember the Corinthians had some problems, right? Some of your problems are coming from the fact that you're not marrying believers. 
You're not marrying into those who believe. And so you can call this stuff missionary dating. Y'all ever had that, that little phrase come up? You can do it, but you're playing with fire, Paul says, whenever you yoke yourself to someone who doesn't believe. Someone who doesn't believe. This is not just an Old Testament. It's not just that. This is something we must teach our own kids nowadays as well. That unless you find someone that believes, that knows and trusts in the same way you're doing, then you're going to have trouble throughout. And I can promise you, if we walk through this room, some of y'all in different ways and different places, but each one of you have a story about this, possibly, of those you know who got into relationships and married those who were unbelievers and how disastrous that could be. And for those stories where we see that turn and God works and they become believers, we've got a thousand more where it doesn't. We praise God for what he does, right? But we also know that his way is best. And here you see off the bat, Judah has married and the kids have become wicked. Not only that, we're going to see that Judah is not going to be faithful to the Leverite marriage. The word Lever means brother-in-law. And so what we see in Genesis, and I'll, I'll emphasize this again in a little bit, is the most important thing is you have children, right? You have to continue the line. It has to keep going. And so if the oldest son dies, just like Ur did, before he has any children, it was the responsibility of the next son to take that one's wife, his oldest brother's wife, and be with her and provide an heir for his older brother. That was the, that's what a Leverite marriage was. We see this in the story of Ruth and Boaz, right? And the next of kin that happens with Boaz. We see it here. This was laid out in Deuteronomy later. Moses will lay it out. He kind of gives the story of what it is here and then he lays it out. It's called, as we look at it, the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman comes in and redeems that family line. It's broken. There's no other kids coming from there. So the kinsman has to step in and redeem that family line, right? And so when Judah sees this happen, he brings this idea even to his family. And he tells Onan, it's your job. But Onan's wicked because he doesn't want to provide an heir for Ur. Because if he provides an heir for Ur, that means Ur's kid will get the inheritance that Onan wants. Y'all see how it works? This is why he becomes wicked. This is why it says that he, he interrupted this process so as to he could not provide an heir. He could not provide an heir. And the Lord took him because they weren't performing their duty of what was before them out of the wickedness of their heart. Now, it's Judah's responsibility to give him the third son, uh, give the third son to Tamar. Because his line, Judah's line, is now in jeopardy. He's only got three sons. One's left. And he named that last one Sheila. You know what I'm saying? Isn't that a name? So ain't no way anybody's going to marry some man named Sheila. And so his time now that he must give Sheila to Tamar and redeem the line for Ur. Judah's whole secession, his whole genealogy, his family tree now rests on the last son. But he doesn't want to give Sheila to Tamar because his first two sons were killed. 
So now Judah stops the process. And Judah says, no, no, no. I lost my first two boys. It's probably Tamar's fault. Y'all know how some parents get blind to how just bad their kids are. I'm not talking about any of y'all. <laughs> Judah couldn't come to grips with this, my sons and their wickedness. And he didn't come to grips with that. And if he didn't come to grips with that, that means he can't correct it, right? He can't deal with it. He believed it was Tamar's fault. And so here he says to Tamar, you go put on the widow's garment and wear it. We got to keep you away from any other man. You put on the widow's garment and wear that. And when Sheila is of age, then we'll let this happen. But Judah had no intention of letting it happen. That's what that says at the end. Judah's married into an unbeliever, an unequally yoked family. Now he's unfaithful to the commitments that he's supposed to make as one, the father trying to keep the family line going. And then that leads to also to his unfaithful actions here. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, still not naming her, she died. So now, y'all recognize the problem. He has no wife, right? And so he does not have, he's got one son left, and that's it. That's all to continue his family line. And he's not willing to give Tamar, that son, to Tamar to keep it going as it is, and rightfully so, according to tradition of the word that has been passed down. So Judah, when Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Dulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So Tamar, recogni Tamar recognizes that Shelah's ready, and Judah has no intention. So she's going to take matters into her own hands. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. This is what they did. This, by the way, prostitution, even if you read scripture, you can read outside sources, has been around forever in, in human history and common occurrence. And, and still to this day, one of the great places they prey upon these things is on the road and traveling, right? When you're away from home, away from any kind of of accountability with family, with friends, or what have you, then it may happen. So she recognizes maybe she can get in on this. She goes to the gate where the prostitutes would stay, and whenever Judah comes up, he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. What y'all need to know is what she's doing now is what we call getting the receipts. Y'all know what I'm talking about? <laughs> she's getting the receipts for this little transaction. I'm not going to wait on a young goat. Go ahead and get me the things that only belong to you, Judah. Your signet, your cord, and your staff. 
Those are your things. Nobody can reproduce those things. Nobody can come up. There's no way you can make an argument. There's none of that. Give me that stuff. Judah, who was intent on this meeting, for some reason said, okay. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked him into the place, where is that cult prostitute who was any name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there. Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own. Of course, you don't want to get found out. You can't track this down, Judah. You know what I mean? I start going asking who's got my signet ring and all my other stuff like that. You scratch that off, write it off. It's a loss. If I go up there, we'll be laughed at, he said. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah, told, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she went to the father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. Y'all know what that's called? Presenting the receipts. Y'all see what I said? <laughs> By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Isn't that interesting? Ultimately, we see what's going on here. Judah has committed an unfaithful, immoral action. Tamar has taken matters into her own hands. Ultimately, when it comes down to being found out, you see this moment on Judah's face, really. You can see it, even as I read, when the signet ring and the cord and the staff are presented. But he says, she is more righteous than I. Isn't that interesting? Judah does not want to put any blame on the, on the girl. He takes all the blame upon himself. In fact, he not only says that, he says her actions are righteous, are righteous before us. What she did was right. Now, how can that be? I don't think Judah's necessarily trying to justify playing a prostitute and going by the gate. I don't think he's trying to do that. I think Judah's speaking to something deeper here because this whole passage is about the genealogy. In fact, it's all about this idea of birth, right? I mean, the first five verses are about how Judah had a wife and she gave birth. And so you're continuing the line. You're talking about birth. You're talking about these things happening. And then you get to the last couple verses and you have another section, verse 27. When their time for labor came, there were twins in her room. By the way, this is only the second time that twins are mentioned in the Bible. You don't know how many times twins are born in the Bible? Twice. We've already had both of them here in Genesis. And in both cases, what's going on in the womb? A wrestling match. You know what I'm saying? I mean, here ultimately, and when she was in labor, one of them put out a hand 
And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on that hand, saying, this one came out first. They're wrestling in the womb on who's going to come out first, and one of them just gets a hand out. You see what I'm saying? Like, I'm trying to get out. Then the hand goes back in. The midwife ties the little band on her and comes out saying, that was the first one. And then what happens? They come back in and wrestle a little bit longer. As she drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name will be called Perez, which means breach. What a breach you have made. A, a, a bursting forth, a, a, a overcoming, if you will. And afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. It's almost identical in many ways. We don't have the prediction of the Lord whenever he, he went um, and told Rebecca that you're going to have two, younger is going to serve the older. But you have the same mentality here because you have two, and the one who came out first with the hand is not going to be the one who is blessed ultimately through this. As they're going to continue the line, it's going to be Perez. So this begins with a birth story of the sons of Judah, and it ends with another birth story, a replacement of those sons, right? Those first three, a replacement here coming out and continuing that line, which is Perez. Going back to this, though, I want just to put that all of this, chapter 38, serves in the purpose of this genealogy. Moses is doing something here that's vitally important. And what I've said from the beginning is that the thesis statement of Genesis, really, I would argue the thesis statement of Scripture is what? Y'all remember? Genesis chapter 3 Verse 15. And so let's turn back there. Genesis 3.15. After sin in the garden, they've been caught, busted, everything. The Lord comes and he pronounces his, his, his curses on them. And he looks there First to the serpent, tells the serpent, you're never going to be satisfied. You're going to crawl on the belly the rest of your life. You're going to eat dirt. But then he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And what I've been saying from the beginning is really what scripture is, is this genealogy of people looking and longing for the serpent crusher, the offspring that will come and finally put to death the great disturber of God's peace, right? Which is exactly what Romans 16 says, God. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. And he's done that through sending his son, Jesus Christ. So this is the first gospel in scripture. It's the thesis of it all. And so every little story now goes back to this, fulfilling who is the serpent crusher? Who is the one that's going to put him to death? Who is the one that's going to end it? And now the promises of God are tied to a coming baby. Y'all understand what I mean? An offspring, a seed. And what happens here is Judah knew the promises of God. 
Judah knew that it would have to be a baby who could crush the serpent. Judah knew that his responsibility was to continue the line of offspring until that one comes that can crush the serpent. And Judah was willing to cut it off and not, not keep going. In other words, Judah's actions were deeper than just, I don't want to give my third son. Judah's actions were, I don't really believe the promises of God. I don't really believe in that. I'm not really invested in that. I'm willing to let the end be over with. In fact, in Genesis 3, the Lord looks at the woman and he says, childbirth, right, is going to be tough for you. It's going to be hard. Paul even says a little later that women were saved through childbirth. Y'all remember that? He's talking to them. Why is he saying this? He's saying because childbirth becomes a testimony of belief in the promise. Why would we bring children into this wicked world? Because we have a promise that God can redeem, will redeem, and will save until ultimately they will glorify him, right? And so ultimately that's the promise we have. And so believing that leads to something. Believing that leads to having children. Believing that leads to continuing the line. And ultimately, Judah here says, that's enough. I'm, too, I don't, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm not going to continue my line. Judah was ready for his line to be over and ended. And so Tamar, a Canaanite, Tamar acted more righteous because she did what it took to continue the line, to keep going. Whatever that may be. Now we can sit here and try to justify, is that the right move, is she handling it well? We don't always do stuff in the best way sometimes, right? But in whatever case, when Judah recognized it, he says, she's more righteous than I am because she did whatever it took to continue the line just as we were told to. She's more righteous. It's not Sheila, thank God, <laughs> that the king is going to come through. It's Perez. Notice these little stories then. If you look to the book of Ruth, The book of Ruth is a short little four-chapter book, beautiful book. Y'all know that story, The Kinsman Redeemer. Same situation. They leave the promised land for whatever reason. They leave out of the promised land and Elimelech takes off. He finds Naomi out there, they find they have three kids, all their kids die, uh, two kids, excuse me, Malon and Chilion, they die, they take Moabitess wives, remember the Moabites came from, y'all remember that came from the incest of Lot's daughters, and y'all remember that? They take Moabitess wives there, one was named Oprah, her name was Orpah, but I just say Oprah just because y'all know Oprah. <laughs> the other one was Ruth. Orpah goes back. Naomi's bitter. She's mad because now she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. The line is over. Nobody else. It's done. Cut off. So she goes, sends them back, and, and Naomi says, nope, nope. 
as, as go back Ruth, Ruth says, no, nah, I want to be buried with your people. Ruth returns. Ruth goes into the wheat fields looking for some wheat because you got to leave some on the side for those who are hungry, right? There Boaz sees her. Boaz finds out he's a distant relative. Uh, he's not the first relative or the closest relative, but he finds out he's a distant relative. So distant, Naomi doesn't even know him. Y'all got some of those distance too. Finds out he's a relative. He goes and asks those that are closer, are you willing to do what you're supposed to do? Save this, save this line and redeem it. Are you willing to do it? No, no, Boaz says, I'll do it. Boaz and Ruth fall in love. They redeem the line. This four chapters are beautiful of how God works this out, not by happenstance or chance, but in his providence. He worked it out that when the line was finished and dead, right, he provided a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz redeems it. And if you look, the whole point of the book of Ruth is found at the end of chapter 4. The whole point of it is found there. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of who? Perez. Y'all see what happens? Y'all remember how Genesis is broke down into 10 sections. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. These are the generations of Jacob. And that's the section we're in in Genesis. Now you have Ruth. And what happens here in Ruth? Now these are the generations of Perez, born to Tamar by Judah. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. If Boaz would not have done the job of the kinsman redeemer, the line would have ended and there's no David. If Tamar had not played the prostitute and gone by the city gate and did what she did with Judah, the line would have ended and there is no Perez. There is no Perez. Do y'all know what happens if there's no Perez and there's no David? There's no Jesus. In both of these stories, in the whole book of Ruth, the name of God is not mentioned. In the whole book of Genesis, I mean, the whole chapter of Genesis 38, God's not mentioned. But you see God's hand behind every little detail of this, right? How God is orchestrating things and working in spite of sinfulness, in spite of wickedness, in spite of anything. God is bringing about his plan. And do y'all know how many ladies are in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew? Four. Do y'all know how many of those ladies are Jews? None. Tamar, a Canaanite, mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho, right? Mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth, a Moabitess, Mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And the wife of Uriah. Y'all know who that was? Bathsheba. Mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. 
And in that, what we see is that God takes even those who are outsiders and brings them in to use his plan. Even those who were separate, the Moabites cut off, right? All of the Canaanites cut off, but God still can bring them in to use them into his glorious plan, which I am thankful for because I am one who was not a Jew by birth, a Gentile, cut off from the things of God, but I've been brought in. And why have I been brought in? Because I had a kinsman redeemer myself. One who came that looked just like me. One who came to take my sin. One who came to die in my place. And this kinsman redeemer idea that Boaz has, that we see in Judah, will become what Jesus is to all of us as he comes as one of us to redeem us and save us. The story's pointing us to him and how God is orchestrating all of this to bring salvation about through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Judah said, she's more righteous than me. She believed the promise. She kept it going. And we hold on to that. In Genesis 49, I think it shocked the mess out of Judah, to be honest. Jacob is in Egypt. He's dying. They've reconciled. We'll see Judah. Judah it's going to be a beautiful picture of reconciliation with Judah and Joseph here in a little bit. They reconciled. Jacob's on his deathbed. He looks to his kids, assemble and listen, and he's going to bless each one as he goes down the line. Reuben, he'd already disqualified himself. He's the firstborn. He says, you're unstable as water. Y'all might, might have a kid like that. You're unstable as water. Right? You've defiled Genesis 35. He slept with one of Jacob's uh, uh, wives, Bilhah. You've defiled it. You're disqualified. Simeon and Levi, y'all remember them? Genesis 34, they're the ones that went off for their sister Dinah, disqualified. Judah. Judah may be thinking, I'm about to get blasted myself, right? Dad knows what happened. Dad knows that I'm responsible. Dad knows I, what I've done. Dad knows. So here it goes. Reuben, surely he's going to give it to Joseph and his kids and children and all them, right? He's done blasted Reuben. He's done let Simeon and, and Levi know that they're cursed by their anger, as it says in verse 7. Then he goes to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not part, depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. You know that shot, Judah. And as he says it, we're reminded that Reuben, he got what he deserved. Simeon and Levi, they got what they deserved. But Judah, he got grace. He got grace. And his name will be restored. And there's going to come one from Judah who will be like a lion, it says. And he will rule forever. So it's no surprise in Revelation 5, whenever 
They're mm -hmm. looking for one to open the scrolls. And John can't find him. The elder comes up and taps John on the shoulder and says, don't cry. There is the lion of the tribe of Judah. There he is. And he looks and he sees a lamb standing as though he had been slain. You see, God has used Genesis 38 in that story to show how he can redeem the greatest of messes, right? To bring about his salvation for his people through a kinsman, through a kinsman who will purchase them back. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. Thank you for what you have done, not only in our lives, but throughout history to bring about salvation and redemption, God. All your plan, all your work, all glory goes to you. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.